Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In today's episode, we're speaking with Kevin Peterson, founder and CEO of GrowthStack. Kevin's got a great story. From riding the wave of the dot-com startup to reinventing himself with the acquisition of his first company, which has built the momentum to what he now enjoys. For context, Kevin's has since gone on to buy, build, and sell some 60 companies with his latest deal under contract for around $65 million in enterprise value. How did this start? With his first $750 acquisition of a tattoo blog. In our interview, Kevin takes us into the world of secondary markets, where micro and small businesses are bought and sold. Since doing his first deal, he's laddered up and gained both knowledge and the scar tissue along the way. Always a lot to learn. Enjoy the show. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Corey. Thanks for having me. So we got connected. How? I can't remember. But as soon as we had our pre-call, I'm like, this is going to be an interesting interview. You've got a really interesting background and with a focus on buying businesses, buying, growing and selling businesses. Uh, the best place to start is with that history coming from you. So I'm going to hand it over to you and give us some background. Awesome. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. And how far back do you want to go? Because I can start at a, a pretty young age. It did guide my career path. Yeah. Well, feel free to, to elaborate where you like. One thing I like is like, I think that there was, I recall this acquisition of a tattoo blog just out of straight curiosity if it would work. And now it's blossomed into something huge. So yeah, feel free. Yeah, that's exactly right. So yeah, so I actually had a, an IPO or I participated in IPO pretty early in my career. I was in my 20s, 1996. Don't want to date myself too much, but, and that was an amazing experience. And I leveraged that experience to start consulting. So I was, my background is marketing and I was consulting in the marketing world for and particularly in the financial industry for about 20 years. And then it was kind of that classic metaphorical tale of uh, like the quarterback wanting to get out before being sidelined, <laughs> where I realized I was at a point in my consulting career where I, I had a great run. I learned a lot. I met a lot of great people. I worked on some really great projects for you know Fortune 500 companies, and that was amazing. And then I realized that, you know, I I was at a point where I wanted to make a switch. And so I discovered this thriving secondary market for online businesses. And I was intrigued. So as I dug into that, what I found was that this marketplace, there's really a community, almost a culture of buyers and sellers of online businesses at every level of play. So think as small as a few hundred dollars to buy a startup site that's kind of cookie cutter, but it it gets you 80% of where you want to be for your vision and all the way up to eight and, and nine figure transactions. Most of the people in this space are looking for acquisitions in the, let's say, 
one to five million range, or maybe they stretch a little bit beyond that. So this first, you know, I was intrigued by this notion that people are buying and selling online businesses on a regular basis and like nobody's talking about it, right? Like if, if Apple buys Beats, it's in the news. If I pay 5 million or 10 million or in, in a lot of cases, even 50 million for a company, no one's going to care. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. So just to dip my toes in, the first thing I bought was this tattoo blog. And I don't have any tattoos, but I had never, I didn't have any blogging experience. I had marketing, marketing experience and I'd hired writers in the past, but I had never personally owned or operated a blog. So I'm like, oh, you know, what's that like? Can I, can I do it? Can I really make money doing this? So I started blogging about tattoos. My strategy was to focus on holidays and holiday themed tattoo, tattoos. So effectively every holiday, right? I was blogging about like, oh, you're, here are cool tattoos for Mother's Day, right? And it worked. Traffic was up and revenue was up very quickly. What did you buy it for? I paid $750 for this site. Yeah. And then I paid a developer about $400 to make some improvements to the, to the site. And then I started blogging. And I was working for me to post a blog. It was taking 20 minutes at, for each post. And I was doing that twice a month. So I was spending 40 minutes a month on this blog. Within 90 days, it was returning about you know, $750 in ad revenue. So I was getting you know, nearly 100% return on my initial investment every month. And I'm like, That's, this is weird and cool. So, and then it got my wheels turning and I started thinking about like, okay, well, what if I had 10 or 100? <laughs> or what if instead of spending you know, $1,000 on a purchase, what if it was 10000 or 100000 And so I've been stair-stepping the marketplace ever since. Now, the last, I think, the recent deal that you, you discussed with me in the pre-call was far larger. Where are you at with that? And can you quantify that? Because it's, it's, it's an epic leap. Yeah. So my journey, you know, started out with this tattoo blog on like a $1,200 investment. And then and then eventually it were turned into $5,000 or $10,000 purchases. And then eventually I had my first six-figure purchase and then my first seven-figure purchase. What I learned from that is that the only place I felt comfortable investing was in SaaS, software as a service. And that's because of the recurring revenue component and kind of the, I don't know, predictable nature is quite the right phrase. But to me, the recurring revenue equals runway right? There, you've got time to react to changes in the marketplace or changes in technology. And so the revenue seems, at least on the surface, the revenue is, is more stable than some other online models that I've seen. So I really started focusing on that. And then in 2019, I went all in on SaaS. So now we only own SaaS businesses and we're only acquiring SaaS businesses and they have to be cash flowing at time of purchase. So where we are in the in the marketplace today is like lower middle market, typically one and a half million to seven and a half million net income at time of acquisition. You say net income? Net, yeah. Yeah. So this business that we're buying now has an enterprise value of sixty two million and we're buying seventy five percent equity in that business. Wow. Talk me through the the buying process. And I think that, you know, I would imagine well. The, the buying process of a thousand dollar business to a hundred thousand or or a twenty five million dollar business or wherever number you want to throw there 
is is certainly different, but there's got to be at one point, you know, the, the due diligence is the same. For a thousand bucks, you probably, ah, roll the dice. Going to drop a hundred grand, you're going to think a little bit harder and up. So what is that buying process? What does that look like? Yeah, so that's a great question. So, and you're absolutely right that once you hit a certain point, due diligence becomes a little bit easier. It's not, it's not less work, but it's, it's just different in that you have more data. So a business, like if a business is, is at least at, well, let's just say 1 million net income, the founders have gone through proof of market fit and, you know, proof of concept and they're, they've got clients and revenue. And typically a business that size is going to have at least a couple years or if not several years history to look at. And so you're going to have more data to consider while going through the due diligence process. So that I guess it's the way to say it is that the data becomes more real and verifiable. And it's it's a little bit more work because there is there is more data and the numbers are bigger. But but yeah, I mean to your point, like doing diligence on a you know one million dollar business is not that different from a ten million dollar business. Yeah. And then similarly operating the business, you know, it's not 10 times harder to run a $10 million business versus a $1 million business. Right. You know, there's this adage in the finance world that it's it's just as easy to raise 50 million as it is 5 million. In fact, it's harder to raise five. Yes, absolutely true. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, the hardest thing that any founder or entrepreneur can ever do is raise $1 million. Yeah. <laughs> so hard. <laughs> but by contrast, you know, once you're at that kind of, I don't know, 15 million and up level, the conversations are a lot easier. Okay. On what level? Like financial financial level, operations level, or how so? Yeah. So, I mean, really, and you asked about the, the process, right? So from the first conversation with capital players at that level, the conversations are so much, the first conversation is so much shorter, right? It's like, hey, and I'll just, I'll just role play it with you a little bit, right? I mean, with, with myself, but like, you know, I get on the call and I'm like, hey, I'm Kevin, this is what I'm doing. I buy cash flowing B2B SaaS in this range. What are you doing? And then the, the other party will say, well, this is our thesis. And then it's either a match or it's not. Like, we'll figure that out in the first 10 minutes of the call. Yeah. Like you get, you know, there's some niceties that you get out of the way during the first one or two minutes. And then you dive into, this is our thesis. Does it match your thesis? And it's, it's a yes or no box. Yeah. Right. If the answer is yes, then you keep talking. If the answer is no, then it's like, Hey, you know what? I'm so glad we met. And if I see any deals that match your thesis, I'll call you. Yeah. <laughs> but we recognize in that first 10 minutes that there's a pretty good chance we're never going to talk again. Yeah. Right. And that's okay. But that, and that is, it's better than okay. Like the idea is um, there's an adage about getting to know fast. Like you want to get to the no answer as quickly as possible for both parties. Like speed dating for capital relationships. It is. Oh yes. And I will share with you and your listeners, there will be a gasp. <laughs> I've done more than 125 investor presentations in the last 24 months. Wow. I've done 87 since May. Okay. So it is very much like speed dating. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you hop on the call and you're either a match or you're not. And then if you are, then it gets interesting because then it's not about, okay, are we aligned? Is our vision aligned? But the next thing is, okay, so our vision is aligned and we seem like so far we're getting along okay, right? It's It really is. I'm, I'll continue down the speed dating 
metaphor, right? It's like, okay, so yeah, the appetizers went pretty well. <laughs> Should we order an entree or are we out of here? So yeah, then you look deeper at, okay, well, what's on the menu? Does anybody have any allergies? <laughs> it's like that. Yeah. And so, and then if you get to that point where you're like, okay, so not only are our are, are visions aligned, but then the next thing is, okay, is this, is this a deal that we should explore? Gotcha. And, and you're, so you're talking about when speaking with somebody who has the capital that can back the acquisition of a deal. So you're not coming in with all your own money. You're coming in and saying, this is the opportunity I have. This is the enterprise value of this. We need to fill up this amount of equity. This is what I'm bringing in personally. Are you guys interested? Ah, yes, we are. You know, okay, let's, and then you start to do the dance. Exactly. Yeah. How do you start to tease out their actual level of commitment? Because it'd be a real bugger to be locked up in a deal. And maybe the process that you run is different, but to lock up a deal and have some form of obligation to them, whether it be, you know, a legal or financial commitment to, to do that deal and then have a financial partner back out. How do you mitigate that risk and ensure that you're actually going to cross the line with the capital they say they're going to bring in? Yeah. So there are some indicators along the way, right? So the first step is, do you want access to the data room? Like, are, are you going to assign analysts to this and take some of your time and money to dig deeper into the, into the deal and the, the target company? And then the next thing is, uh, okay, so you've been in the data room, you still like it, let's start talking terms. And that's a, you know, that's typically a verbal conversation to start. Like, Hey, well, one of the things that I ask up front is, are you liquid? Because as it turns out, one of the greatest drivers of whether a deal makes it to the finish line is timing for the everybody involved, right? Like, and, and it's true for myself as well. Like somebody could send me a great, like somebody could send me a great deal today, but I'm, I don't have time <laughs> to even look at it, right? I'm, I'm working, you know, I'm in striking distance of crossing the finish line on this other deal and I won't do anything to jeopardize that. Yes. So somebody could bring me a deal that's a perfect fat match for my thesis today. And I might, A, I might not have time to even look at it. I might just look at the headline or I might not even open the, the teaser. I might just look and see what industry are they in, how big is it? And then maybe I'll forward it to somebody else in my network and say, wow, this, the timing is unfortunate. I'm sending this over to somebody else, right? Yeah. Or I might just ignore it. But so timing is key. And then that's also true on the capital side, right? Where I can't tell you how many times I've been on a call and they're like, wow, love what you're doing. Love the deal. And too bad you didn't call two weeks ago because we just deployed on something else. And so we're all in on that right now. Or, hey, as soon as we exit this other position, you know, we expect to close this exit in six weeks. Call us then, right? And I'm like, well, it's going to be too late. Like six weeks is too long. I need to know now. So one of the first questions I ask is, you know, okay, so you're interested. Are you liquid? Because if you don't have liquidity today to support this transaction, then there's no reason for us to, to spend time on. Now, if you're buying, let's keep it kind of low. I, I, I do find the avenues of buying existing businesses really interesting. But to frame it up, probably, you know, sub 5 million. Let's give it a value just for conversation's sake of 5 million. And let's say you need to raise, you wouldn't do this, but you need to raise 100% equity through a third party. When approaching these organizations, what are the deal terms that they come at you with? And 
What does that negotiation look like? Yeah, so the answer to that is as broad as you can imagine. So every everyone at the table at every level has their own investing thesis and what makes a good deal for them. So that's actually one of the first things you need to ask is, hey, what makes a, what makes a good deal for you as the check writer? And you start from there. So in terms of terms, you know, you need to have a target in your mind of what makes the deal right for you. Like, okay, if this person comes in, but they want, you know, they're going to give me 3% commission or like finder's fee, and I'm going to be operating it. Like I've got, I've got, I'm taking the risk on the performance and they're taking the risk on the capital. There has to be some benefit for both parties, obviously. So you do need to come into the conversation with a a pretty good idea of your ask. Right. In fact, it's critical because the other party, if they have any interest in the deal at all, they will ask you what your ask is on the first call. They'll say, yeah, what, what are your terms? What are you, what are you looking for? And you'll say like in this, in this scenario, well, I'm looking for $5 million and I want to, I want to get whatever the number is, 10% or 15% equity for putting the deal together, installing a management team or a board, and taking over X, Y, and Z, and this is how I'm. This is how I'm thinking about structuring the deal. Interesting. I really appreciate your insights on on how to develop and have these conversations with potential check writers. And I think it's something that is important to note is that capital firms, companies that are out there who are professional investors as an organization, they need good deal flow. And along with having good deal flow, it must be really nice to have somebody phone up, get some niceties out of the way. And just start trading figures of like, this is where we're at. This is where you're at. Okay, so some synergy, some matching thesis. Now, what do you want, right? Like, ah, uh, we can work within that. You know what? We don't, we don't do less than this. Just get it out. And well, great to know. Do you have liquidity and time if I brought you a deal? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Amazing. Okay. This is not an easy thing to teach. Like, you got to just do it. And the way I've described it to people, because people have asked me, they're like, how do I, how do I get into your arena? And I'm like, well, first you have to do a $1 million deal. (laughs) Like, first you have to do a $100,000 deal, and then a $1 million deal, and so on. Like, you, you don't just, there's not really a shortcut. And the metaphor that I've used in the past is for any of your listeners who have ever worked a trade show booth, right? If you're at a conference and you're working a booth, the first person that walks up to your booth gets the worst pitch ever because it's day one of the show. Yeah. You just got the booth set up. You're kind of getting a feel for the, you know, the lay of the land and the people and the, like knowing your audience. And, and the first person that walks up you're you might be telling them about a new promotion and you've never even heard yourself say it before out loud. Right. And so it's just awkward. The first person gets the worst pitch ever. And then by day three, you can look down an aisle way of conference goers and spot the person that's going to walk up to you. Like, you know, you're like, oh, that person's going to come over and and say hello. I can just tell by their body language. Yeah. And these are the questions they're going to ask because I've said this. I've had that question 120 times in the last three days. I already know I'm going to answer it. And so by day three, and I'm just half jokingly, right? By day three, you're a little bit tired, a little bit hungover, right? Yeah. Depending on, you know, your conference experience. But my experience is by by day three, you're not, you're not necessarily in top form. And yet people are getting a flawless pitch every time because you've been doing it for three days. And so pitching investors is, is quite the same. From my capital raising days, it reminds me of the strategy of, we would look and say, okay, 
let's line up our meetings. Who do we know? They got capital, but we know they're going to say no. Let's go pitch them first. Go pitch them. Say the stupid things. Fumble on the pitch a bit. Get asked hard questions. You know they're going to say no, but they took the meeting. Who cares? And then move on to once you've kind of gotten the rust off, right? Or you, you, you start getting a little bit, bit of flow out of it. Then move into the, the, the more warm, high potential relationships that, that are likely, more likely to say yes and pitch them then. And then by the end of it, man, it's just like it flows and there's a, a, a poetry to it. So I hear what you're saying. Yeah, well said. Yeah, that strategy is great. I want to know more again about buying companies and the secondary markets. Canada, we're smaller than California in population. And so we just don't have these concentrations and, and I always, when you look down to the U.S., it's like, my God, everything's 10 times, everything's supersized. So when the secondary markets for these businesses, how do you look into them and how do you start to, to identify deals and go, okay, this, this looks like a contender. Is it a matchmaking site or is it relationships that you have or where do you identify opportunities that, that you're, you're going to commit some time to to potentially acquire? Yeah, so it really is all of the above. I mean, for somebody just starting out, the best place to start, I mean, there's really two two places to start. One is online platforms. Like there's a platform called MicroAcquire that has become popular. And without pissing off everyone at MicroAcquire, their, their reputation has already been tarnished a little bit. Why is that? Not because of the platform. Yes, yeah, because buyers have used it to sort of as sort of tire kickers, like test test the waters for an exit. And so did I say buyers? I meant the sellers. Yeah. So founders, founders are posting on there and asking for wildly ridiculous valuations. Like, hey, I've got this startup and we're up to $12,000 a month in revenue and I'm asking 20 million. Right. And I might be exaggerating a little bit and maybe not, but a lot of serious buyers are not taking the listings there as seriously, just because it just appears that a lot of the, a lot of the sellers are just testing the waters like they're not they're not serious about letting go of their business yet right but in any case the but the platform itself is legit there are other platforms like it where if you're curious about just even seeing what's out there and what kinds of founders are are running businesses and thinking about selling it's a great place to start and then the next step would be to contact brokers in the space so like even in the online business world, there are several brokers that are very reputable and, and well-known in the, in the industry. And then from there, it's like you said, re- relationship building is certainly a key piece. I see deals from, from everybody at this point, investment banks, M&A attorneys, even developers. Like I'll have developers come to me and say, hey, I built this site for this person five years ago. They're thinking about selling it. I thought of you first. Take a look. So there's some of that. And then the other thing is I actually launched a mastermind for SaaS founders and investors about two years ago. And that's a great way for me to see deal flow. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Nice kind of strategic move from you to start to get more deal flow for yourself. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. My motivations there were twofold. So one was it really is a give back in a lot of ways. Like I really do want to share my knowledge and experience with people. And then my selfish reason for starting it was in fact deal flow. I'm like, if I, if I'm running a mastermind. It's going to increase my network and my deal flow. When I think about SaaS, I just like the only, the only SaaS products I think about are like Google and Facebook and Slack. And you know what I mean? Things like that, where just the mega names that 
that's what they are, right? They're, I don't think about small companies that actually have a following unless they're, they're very well venture funded. So when you're looking at SaaS deals, what kind of deals are these? Who do they serve? So I'm almost exclusively looking at B2B. So, so yeah, I mean, it is software that's sold on a subscription basis to a business. And then depending on the model, it could be, you know, the SMBs, the small, medium-sized businesses, you know, kind of mom and pop shops that need that software to solve a problem in their, in their business. And then others are enterprise level where you're, you're, you know, you're negotiating five and six figure contracts with the end user. So, but to your point, I mean, most of these are not household names and never will be. Yes. And in fact, some of them even grow to a level where they're massive and they're still not household names, right? So, I mean, one example of one that went the obscure to mainstream and public markets is, is Zoom. Right. All of a sudden pandemic hit and everyone needed to get online for meetings like we're doing. Right. And so Zoom's revenue took off and their user base took off and they went public and the whole thing. And now most people have heard of Zoom. But it, another example of a, of a behemoth that no one's ever heard of is uh, a company called Twilio. So Twilio is the backbone for most SMS tech services worldwide. You know, Twilio is the backbone for all of those platforms, and they're now, you know, publicly traded and doing north. Of, my my recollection is correct; they're doing north of a billion dollars annually revenue, and yet they're probably never going to be a household name. Like you're not going to sit around the dinner table with your kids and say, "What do you think about Twilio today?" Right? It's just not. It's not like that. They're they're not going to have that brand presence, and yet they're they're massive. The question I have is that. What kind of software as a service products are there out there that is my my company? We've got all sorts of, we're super small business here. We've got all sorts of subscriptions to these, these products, but they're arguably all brand names. So what kind of businesses are out there that are, you know, what, what are examples of the services that they have that you just probably never hear of? Or they're just, you know, they, there's a lot of them doing the same thing, but there's still a good market for them. Yeah, well, that's uh, what you just said is actually a really good point. I mean, a lot of, SaaS startups will just compete with the with the big names and carve off market share. Okay. And if you think about it, like it doesn't take very many customers to make a meaningful, at least a meaningful lifestyle business for somebody. Like if somebody is a coder and they have that skill set and they can take like a financial tracking platform to market that competes with Mint, I'm just making this up, but there are real examples of this. And they can get a thousand customers at like five dollars a month. They got five thousand dollars a month coming in, and if they can keep their overhead low, then uh, it's it's a meaningful lifestyle business. Yes. And so those pop up all the time. And then there are others that that look at an existing model from one of the brand names that are popular, recognize that hey, you know what? Either there's really two scenarios here. One is a this customer, I mean this company needs a competitor. Like these guys are getting away with something by not really having any serious competitors. Let's go after it. But more commonly, there's a need that this mainstream brand is not filling or not filling correctly. There's something that they can do better. And somebody gets, a lot of times, this is how SaaS businesses launch, is a developer will get pissed off enough one day to say, wow, I've been using this software for five years 
There's this one thing about it that's been driving me crazy the whole time I've been paying for it. I'm launching my own to compete, and it's going to solve that problem. And the next thing they know, they have a they have a competitor that's a different flavor of the same thing, and they're doing exceptionally well with it. And they they actually have a chance to to take over a you know leadership position in that space. Mm, that is a good point, right? Like sometimes these these companies they just get so complacent. You know, they don't have to be an absolute behemoth, but they can just be in their space and they're they're humming along, but they become very complacent. And somebody inside who's got the, or even on the outside, has got the the tech knowledge to throw together some some code and bam, you've got a, a competitor eating at their heels. Yes, exactly. And then the other thing that happens is technology changes. So like right now, AI is be, is is maturing. It's becoming a real thing. And so there are absolutely SaaS platforms that you personally are paying for today that will either adapt and offer an AI solution or become obsolete because a competitor is going to pop up and say, hey, there's this thing that this company, you know, like this company is doing whatever, 50 million a year in revenue. We have a better product because of AI and we are going to give them a, a serious run for their money. Yeah. I'll tell you an example there. Like I look at QuickBooks, which we use, and I'm just like, I'm like, how is this not just done? Why right. do you have to go through <laughs> all of this shit? Right? Like it just, you think it would recognize these patterns. Yes. Yeah. So, so I see what you're saying there. Yeah. And, and that's actually it. That exact example was in the back of my mind as I was saying that, because I'm connected to a couple of founders now that are going to compete in that space. Gotcha. Solving the very problem that you just said, which is you haven't yet learned that, you know, if I go to Tim Hortons, it's a meal expense. Yeah, exactly. It's not software. It's not office supplies, right? Yeah, yeah. And so there are, there will be platforms on the market in coming months and years that compete because of that, uh, the machine learning where they will rec just, it's exactly what you just said. They will recognize your patterns as a business owner and categorize 99% of the transactions correctly the first time without your accountant or bookkeeper calling you and say, Hey, you know, that, are those shoes for work? <laughs> right? Yeah. I'm curious about your thoughts on AI. I mean, it's just, you know, chat GPT and, and Bard and so, so forth have really just brought it to the tip of everyone's tongue. But what do you see coming down the pipe, especially with your experience in SaaS? And how are you preparing yourself for this? Yeah, so ChatGPT and similar are, I mean, this is really a game changer. This really is a paradigm shift for humanity. It's going gonna, it's gonna to change a lot of things really, really fast. Like fast being over the next 24 months, we're going to see some pretty major changes in how people work and, and how products are produced and so forth. So, you know, the way I see it is the people that adapt to it are going to become more efficient. Like they'll be able to do their jobs better and faster. And for other people, their jobs are just going to change. So I'll give you one example that I think is going to be pretty dramatic. Think of like a paralegal that does research and drafts a document from scratch most of the time. Like that's just not going to be necessary they're going to become human editors for templates produced by AI. So, and there's another, I mean, I've already started having this conversation with my colleagues around garbage in, garbage out, right? That phrase has been around for as long as software has existed. 
and it's going to become more true with AI. And so people in a variety of jobs and industries are going to have to learn how to ask the right questions to AI to get the results they want. That's where I was going, yeah, and how we're going to be interacting. Yeah, exactly. So I think the way this is going to go, and, and we're already starting to look at this in, in our businesses, it's going to start with some inputs, right? Some some standard template for the human user to give inputs to the AI so that they get the result they want. So like getting back to the paralegal example, instead of drafting something from scratch or using a template that they've used a thousand times and then and modifying it from scratch, they'll plug in, they'll have like an intake sheet for the case that they need a contract for or a document for. They'll put in the inputs, click go, and that interface will send the, you know, send the request to the AI. And in less than three minutes, they're going to get a draft contract back that's 80 or 85% done. Then that's where the human element with experience and expertise will apply or, you know, optimize the output. Yeah. Here's where we've seen this change in our business and looking at, for our clients, we'll do a lot of content production. What happens though, and you, you've seen this and is that, or, you know, you in general, the you start to see responses from computer generated AIs that they're just too refined or they're there, but they just lack that human touch. Right. And so, so that's where as much as I, 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 I've been keeping my eye on this and thinking through how am I going to adapt and how do I start to interact with AIs to, to be able to, you know, create these efficiencies. That's been a big thinking kind of thinking thought exercise for me. But then I look and I see that no matter what, I think there's always going to be a value there and it's going to probably even be an enhanced value of having some form of demonstrated human touch and connection to it. Yeah. It's just kind of an observation that I've been having. Yes. And that's spot on. AI will, it's kind of funny. I hadn't really thought of it this way, but in my consulting career, you know, I'm kind of a closet data junkie. And so I, I made a, I built a successful consulting career by helping marketing departments communicate effectively with the big data guys and gals, right? And the classic story, and now this is playing out with AI, right? So the classic narrative I heard from my consulting clients was the data people would always say, hey, you know what? We always give marketing exactly what they asked for and they're never happy. And then I'd go to the marketing team and say, hey, what's going on here? Like, what, what's going on with the data team? And they'd say, well, we always tell them exactly what we want and they never get it right. And both parties are correct, right? Like they're both, the, the, the issue is not that the data team is not capable and the marketing team does know what they want but they're speaking different languages. And so, and I, I really made a career out of just bridging that gap and helping the data, like going to the data team and saying, hey, in the requirements document, 17.1 says this, if you program it that way, the marketing team is going to be really upset because that's not actually, like, here's the use case. Here's the why behind it. Right. This is what they actually want. And then you can see the light bulb go on. They're like, oh, thank you so much for saying that. And then they get it right. Yeah. And it's the same with AI, where how you ask a question matters. <laughs> That's going to be really fascinating to to see how our our how we search for things and how we how we find information is going to change and how we approach 
you know, approach it changing. Because right now we just slam in a, really, we're just slamming in a few different keywords and it kicks back a bunch of results. I mean, you, you search through and you're like, oh, this looks good. I'm satisfied. But that's all going to change. So that's, that's going to be really interesting. Okay. Back to buying businesses. I mean, you've been, how many businesses have you bought and sold now? Mm, I don't know, 60? Jesus. In the last eight years. Wow. Yeah. Now, just to quantify, full transparency, some of those were complete failures and didn't go anywhere. And and in fact, some of them, especially early on, I was willing to invest in my education. So I bought stuff that I didn't make a dime on, but I didn't care. Like I wanted to, I wanted to understand the particular business model. Yeah. I wanted to look under the hood. And so I thought, well, you know, and then, then, and this was when I was, you know, starting down this path eight years ago and I was okay with, you know, spending five or $10,000 on a business that might not do anything for me. But I wanted to understand the technology or the product or, or the audience or there was something about it I wanted to learn from and I was willing to do that. But so I don't necessarily recommend that for everybody. But and then you certainly don't want to be doing that when you're at, you know, the, like this seven figure transaction level or eight figures. But it's okay to to invest a little bit in your education, buy a couple of things on a secondary site that's selling something on the cheap and and see what you can do with it. Like and the tattoo blog was, I mean, that actually is an example of that. Where I was like, hmm, I've never really run a blog before. I'll, you know, I'm going to throw $1,000 at this and see what happens. And then when it started turning out money, I was like, wow, okay. What if I did, like I said, what if I do that 10 times? Or what if I just add zeros? So some of the, yeah, out of the 60 some odd transactions over the last eight years, some of those were not even really intended to do anything. And in some cases, we were just buying code effectively. We're like, hey, you know what? That one piece of code, we can buy it from that seller. And instead of paying a dev team to build that functionality for us, we can just buy that thing. Right. Drop the 5 10K there, bolter on, on your way. Exactly. Yeah. That brings me to a question about technical debt. And I know that this can be a real, you know, a real issue that, especially when you, when you look in the world of deal junkies who, who want to go and slam a bunch of software companies together and, and create value and do all this kind of stuff and, and become rich. But Every piece of technology is out there. It's it's always degrading, right? Like it's not just write the code, walk away. Right, it works. There's the atrophy that goes along with software is something that's very real. But then also, if you go and acquire a business that's operating with a bunch of code, but it's it's made with a bunch of misbranded Lego blocks, if you will, if that's a, an analogy to use, that can be a real real issue. And so. How have you got over that or have you experienced this or are there other pitfalls that can be, that should be warned of when, when acquiring businesses? Yeah. So yeah, great question. You're spot on. I have seen situations like that. We have purchased businesses that fall into that category. We have one that we just went under contract on last week that, that has some elements of that. And then, yeah, there's one that we're actively running now where we just did a full site rebrand and relaunch and, and it's an 11 year old brand. So it definitely fell in that category. Like uh, it has 11 years of history, which is good and bad, right? There's a lot of tech on there that's like, hmm, okay, so if we're going to do a relaunch, we're going to break some things, right? Yes. It's inevitable, right? So, um, and, but to answer your question, technical due diligence is part of the process like it's not you're not when you're looking at a at a possible acquisition you're not just looking at the finances 
there's a lot more that goes into it. So, I mean, there's, you know, certainly the, the financial due diligence, you know, is the, is the cash flowing through the business the way the, the sellers are claiming? And that's one, right? And then there's, there's also, you know, I mean, obviously there's uh, market analysis and competitive analysis, like who, who could crush this business in the next few years? And then there's also, you need to get into like legal diligence, which includes copyright and patent and trademark law and, and potential infringement. You know, what, what is the IP this business owns? And is there any IP that they're violating? Right? Yeah. And then part of that too is uh, technical due diligence. And you've got a technical, like my CTO, will, he, and we just went through this yesterday in fact, on, a, on a target company. My CTO will go through the tech stack and the code and say, you know, he'll give me an assessment of what's working and what's not working. And on this deal that we're looking at right now, like I, I've known the founders for some time. I'm very familiar with their business model and just very much in line with what you were asking. My CTO came back yesterday and said, hey, you know, it's on a it's on an outdated version of this one platform. And it's about that version is going to be retired and in order to upgrade to the new version. It's going to break stuff like there. This is not a this is not an easy lift. Yes. And so that becomes part of the deal negotiation. And I haven't talked to the founders yet, so they happen to be listening. <laughs> um, we're, we're going to have a conversation. <laughs> That's going to say, it's going to go like this. Hey, that one thing needs to be upgraded. It's probably going to cost 200 grand to do it. So we need to figure that out. Like, are you paying for it? Are we paying for it? Or, yeah, is this part of the, is it a contingency for closing? Is it something that we're going to tackle together post-close? And and before I pause, I'll share with you, there's another element to this, right? Which is oftentimes, especially with SaaS, the sellers are the developers. They were the visionaries for that product and the product launch. And they are the they are the primary, you know, brain share for for the tech and the tech stack and how it was built and why it was built the way it was. And so when you buy a business, if those people go away or if they disappear, right? Yeah. You're left with something where you're like, oh, wow, okay, I can't get a hold of the seller. And, you know, we just paid a lot of money for this thing. I can't get a hold of the seller. And they have that knowledge in their head. It's not documented anywhere else. And now we have a problem. And this problem is going to cost us X number of dollars to fix. Yeah. So that's that's a real thing. In being a real thing, how do you frame up your financial models to, to, to look at this? Let's say we're going to pay a million bucks for a business. And I mean, there's there's so many variables here but is there something where you look at and you go okay million bucks for this it's going to create this kind of cash flow i think we would have a a complete return on investment by year three with these things here but do you have a big bucket of a contingency there saying but if these two developers founding developers piss off and never respond to us here's what we'll have to do and how do you then negotiate on that yeah, so there's a couple ways that we do that. So one is we built our own acquisition scoring model. So for each deal that we look at, if we're serious about if we're serious enough that we're thinking about submitting an LOI, then we put it through our acquisition scoring model. And there are a number of criteria and then the each each value is weighted in the model so that our model gives us a score that says, "Hey, this this one is, you know, the value is X." And for us, it's a point of reflection because it's very easy as a buyer to get, you know, shiny penny syndrome, as they say, where if, you know, if you're holding a hammer, everything is a nail, you know, that, those, those analogies, 
right? So in order to take our emotion out of it, we have this scoring model that puts up a number and it's not a, it's not a no go, no decision, but we'll get a score. That's a point of reflection. So my team can meet and say, Hey, that's this deal that we're really excited about is scoring lower in our own model that we created, right? This is scoring lower than something we passed on. So why are we excited? And you have that point of reflection and you look at the criteria and say, okay, well, the reason that it's scoring low is because of these, these three things that we thought are really important to us. It doesn't have that, or it has that on a limited basis. And so that guides how we craft the LOI, because if there are, if we've identified some red flags early, it doesn't mean we're not going to submit an LOI, but we're going to put in more contingencies, more risk mitigation, like maybe some holdback or seller earnout, or or it could be based on the price. It may be something where we say, okay, so we like the deal, we're going to submit an LOI, but we're absolutely not going to go over this price point, right? If the multiple exceeds X, we're out. Like, don't we're we're just not going to chase it. Yeah, yeah. So that's one thing. Yeah. What about the most notable? setbacks or failures you've had in in your acquisition career? Yeah. So a lot of those, it does go hand hand in hand with these conversations we're having about diligence and crafting the, the deal right. Because if you're able to identify red flags before getting to close, then you're much more, you know, you're not gonna have the surprises. You're not gonna have those oh crap moments, right? Yes. And so, but we have, I mean, I certainly, especially early on, there were deals that I jumped into and I thought, oh yeah, this business is great. It's so easy to understand. Let's do it. Right. And then we get six months in and we're like, oh man, there's way more to this than we thought. The product is not as sticky as we thought in the marketplace. There are more tech issues than we thought we'd have to deal with. And now suddenly, yeah, we're six months in and we thought we'd be cash flowing at one level and we're, and we're not. It does happen. I mean, I've experienced that. I can imagine there, there's there's always going to be things that, that 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 pop out. What about your kind of being things you're most proud about in your in your career? It sounds interesting, and I and I enjoy our conversation because you, I feel like you're just so open and happy about it all. So there's got to be things you're quite proud about. What are those? Yeah. So part of my answer to that is I feel like the best is yet to come. Still, like I feel like what the deals that we're looking at today are truer to where we want to be. And so, and I'll try to, I'll try to quantify that a little bit. So early on, I mean, I definitely had shiny penny syndrome in this space, right? I was excited about all kinds of things that I probably had no business being excited about. And by contrast, now that I've matured in on my journey and I have more experience in this space and the deal size is bigger, I've come to realize like what is really important to me in terms of target company and and a lot of it a lot of it now it is the relationships with the the selling party right like are the are the founders good people do they have a good team are we going to work well together post acquisition you know that kind of thing so there's there's that but the other thing is i am excited about looking at deals that can actually make a difference it's not just like how many customers can we get how long will they pay us on a subscription basis before they decide they don't need it anymore. They go to a competitor, right? Now we're looking at things like like this supply chain SaaS that we're working on now. We have an opportunity to save food spoilage in the supply chain on a global level. And that's that's meaningful. It's like, wow, people adopt this product. Less food is going to go to waste between farm and market. And that's awesome, right? Yeah. 
So for me, I, I'm getting excited about finding efficiencies and processes that may have been broken for a thousand years, right? And there's like they're due for a tech upgrade, optimization, like opportunities to optimize something and make the world a better place is obvious. And let's let's do that, right? So I don't know. That's kind of where I'm at today. That's cool. Yeah, it's 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 nice to to you know somewhat ascend to that to be to be at a level where you're looking and you can start to really you know hone in and, and focus on projects that will have a positive impact. And then a lot of what you've said as an entrepreneur, and albeit uh, you know Kevin, until we connected, I've never heard about you or your company or what you're doing. You've got so many characteristics of of the other guests that I've had who who are really remarkable entrepreneurs and built huge companies. I've enjoyed listening to you and, and seeing and just connecting these little dots of, of those characteristic traits. So that's, that's very cool. What about books or podcasts or other, other forms of media that you listen to where you're entertained or educated? Sure. Yeah, there's one in particular, a gentleman I met actually at the beginning of this journey, this guy, uh, Jordan Harbinger, who had a podcast at the time. And he was kind of on that, like in that gray area of infotainment or ed- edutainment, right? Yeah. Where his podcasts were informative, but they were also very entertaining. It's been fun for me. Like his content is always good. His guests are always amazing. You know, he's a good, a good host and he takes, you know, takes conversations in some interesting directions. So I've enjoyed following him, not just because of his content, but it's been fun to watch, you know, like watch his viewership grow and, and see what he's done with it. And then now today he's it's taken it even another direction, it seems, where a lot of his guests are their impact guests in some way, right? Like they're at the forefront of a security issue or they're at the forefront of a change in a technology or, you know, they're disruptors, I guess is probably the best way to say it. So it's, it's very interesting to hear some of those interviews. And otherwise, I just read. I read like crazy all day long. Oh, yeah? And it's funny because my, oh, yeah, I'll share with you. My family swears I don't read. They're like, How are you? like I never see you sitting around with a book. I'm like, I know, but I'm reading all day long, like all day, every day from the time I wake up to the time I go to sleep. I'm reading something. Yeah. Oh, nice. Well, it's been a real pleasure. We'll put your contact information in the show notes. And thank you so much for making the time and sharing your experience with us. Yeah, likewise, Corey. Yes, it's been a great experience. and I really appreciate your time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.